Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 3rd, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. The very first thing you have to do to solve a problem is find out what that problem is. In order to find a real and lasting solution, you have to understand the problem thoroughly and know exactly what it is. Until you have this information, you can't solve your problem. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us we have a problem worse than that. The big book says our main problem centers in our mind rather than in our body. Here to teach us this morning about the nature of our illness is Lori. Lori is a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Winnipeg, Canada, and spends a great deal of time teaching the program of recovery, intensively working with compulsive overeaters, and carrying the message that there is a solution. It is now my great pleasure to welcome Lori. Good morning, Lori. Star one to unmute. Hi, uh, my name is Lori. I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, I very much uh, welcome the opportunity to talk about uh, these two concepts. They are concepts that changed my uh, program and that allowed me to have the recovery I have had since approximately May of 1993. Um, without them, I, I well, I, I would have left the program. I began in 1986. I didn't understand the concepts well enough, and therefore I did not understand the problem, and therefore I did not understand the solution. Um, I am going to talk about the uh, what I understand and what I have been taught is the big book's approach uh, to the problem that we have and, and why the 12 steps uh, provide a solution. Uh, I want to emphasize that um, I am only teaching, or teaching, I'm not even teaching, I'm only telling other people what I have been taught, uh, and I, I give all the credit to uh, uh, people in AA who have uh, gone back to the big book uh, and have taught a great deal of, a uh, great number of people, including those of us in OA, uh, the big book's approach. The big book's approach to the problem is in my experience, a very powerful way of explaining why we need the 12 steps if we have the problem that we have. It allows us to identify ourselves as compulsive eaters and to have that sense of desperation that allows us the commitment to do the steps. Uh, without that sense of desperation, we, we uh, wander and we don't do what should be done. Um, and I think the, 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 well, my experience is the rooms of OA are, are full of people who were like me uh, for about six or seven years and, uh, who don't understand the problem and find comfort in OA but do not find the solution that OA provides. I'll start off by telling my story uh, in, in a way that illustrates the two ideas, the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, uh, that the big book describes. Uh, I should say that anyone who wants more information uh, can go to a website that uh, provides uh, 
a whole bunch of information and some ways of doing the steps uh, according to the big book. And that website is uh, www.oabigbook, all one word, O-A-B-I-G-B-O-O-K dot info. And there's uh, downloads, there's a book, there's podcasts, there's uh, uh, forms for filling out step four and steps eight and nine. And uh, it, it can be of some use, so I invite people to, to go there. Uh, also, anyone who wants to contact me, uh, there's a contact information um, uh, place on there. Um, my story is, I hope, uh, the same as a whole bunch of other people's stories, uh, different foods, different experiences with different foods, but uh, I, my experience has been it's very similar. Um, first of all, I've eaten almost my entire life. Um, there are pictures of me uh, thin but uh, when I was about five or six, but almost all the pictures of me after six show me as a fat and increasingly uh, obese uh, person. And I grew up in a family filled with food. Uh, it was a family of love. I, I was very lucky. I'm one of those compulsive eaters who did not have a, a horrible childhood. I had what I think was a pretty great childhood. But it did consist of food as love. And uh, we lived with my grandparents, my parents, and my brother and I. And um, my grandmother's a great cook, and my mother was a great cook. My mother believed that food is love, and because she uh, worked outside the home with my uh, father and grandfather, uh, when she came home at 6 and my grandmother had already prepared uh, the evening meal, my mother felt guilty, so she'd prepare a fourth meal uh, about 9 o'clock at night. And it was a meal. It wasn't a, it wasn't a snack. I grew to love food, and uh, uh, eating food was my way of showing the love I had for my uh, grand grandmothers and uh, and my mother. Um, so I ate. I ate a lot. I was known as the garbage can of the family. People who couldn't finish their food could give it to me, and I would finish it. And for me, not finishing the food was uh, almost a sin. But I'll tell you my experiences that. I mean, that, that qualifies, I suppose, that qualifies me in a way, but it doesn't really qualify me as a compulsive eater. It qualifies me as a person who had an enormous food intake. And there are people around, and maybe lots of people around, who may be obese and may have a tremendous uh, eating problem, but who do not have my problem, and therefore, at least according to the big book, for whom the 12 steps are not necessarily a solution. There are people who join commercial weight loss programs or join other uh, uh, self-help groups dealing with weight who maybe just need a hint about what is a reasonable quantity to eat uh, and or need some support of people who, you know, are, are in the same boat. Um, what makes the 12-step programs different is that they are designed for people who accept the notion that they have an addiction that has to be changed and that they have a problem that can only, not that can only be solved, that can be solved uh, by the 12 steps. So that's what I want to talk about today. So here here are some descriptions of my eating behaviors. Uh, I tell this story so often. It's it's my story. I hope those who have heard it before won't, won't mind my telling it again. Um, I, I'm, I'm Jewish, and um, uh, Hanukkah uh, is, the, is the festival of lights. Uh, comes around uh, December. It is also the festival that commemorates the 
miracle that uh, a vessel of oil that was supposed to last for one day in, in, uh, as part of the eternal flame and the liberation of the temple in Jerusalem uh, lasted for eight days until more oil could be uh, developed. And this fact of the, the eight days rather than the one day, the miracle, uh, is celebrated both as the festival of light, but when it came, comes down to the food, it's uh, celebrated as the festival of Greece. Uh, uh, the, the amount of food and the uh, nature of the food that is served at Hanukkah is notoriously uh, greasy, fat food. And uh, there was one uh, Hanukkah dinner that my mother had prepared. Um, I was, um, I don't remember it completely. Uh, I remember that uh, it, it was abundant and that my mother had cooked a goose. Uh, there, there are two other very greasy items that are always served, or that in my family were always served at Hanukkah dinner. There were two kinds of uh, pancakes, or latkes in Yiddish, and um, both of them were, were deep fried. Well, one of them was deep fried and one was fried. And the one that was just fried uh, was, uh, had uh, the, the goose gravy put on it to, to uh, make it even thicker. Um, at any rate, the goose uh, was uh, goose, as probably most people know, is one of the uh, greasiest. Uh, it is probably the greasiest domesticated uh, uh, fowl around. So we ate. We had a huge meal, and there were about I don't know ten or fifteen people there. They were in the living room, in in the living room, uh, sort of an L-shaped uh, distance away from the kitchen. And I went into the kitchen to get a a diet drink, which has always amused me. I had eaten abundantly. I saw that on the uh, cutting board was the goose, the carcass of the goose that my mother had cooked. And hanging on that carcass was the goose skin. Uh, the goose skin was, is so fat that it just comes right off the goose. It doesn't, you, you, it doesn't stick to the meat at all. And I thought to myself, uh, I, I really like uh, goose skin, but I'm absolutely full. I, I just can't eat anymore, but I would like a taste of it, just just, just to have a taste. So I picked up the goose skin. It was uh, still very hot, maybe an hour and a half after uh, coming out of the oven, which, uh, which shows how much fat it had, the fat had retained the heat. And I, I picked it up, and I put a little bit into my mouth, uh, tried to tear off a little bit just to get the taste. Goose skin is very, um, very strong, and um, I couldn't tear off that little bit, so I put a bit more in my mouth, trying to find a sort of a weak spot that I could just tear off. And I couldn't find a weak spot, so I put a bit more in my mouth in order to find that bit that I could tear off. Um, I don't quite remember the process; it's kind of blank to me. But at, I, I remember having the entire goose skin in my mouth at this point. I was chewing frantically because it was so hot that it was burning the inside of my mouth. And I was chewing it and chewing it, both to get rid of the hotness and to, well, to eat it, I guess. Um, fat was spurting out of my mouth. And, 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 and you may remember that there were 10 or 15 people in that house just a little bit away, uh, 15 feet away. And I kept on eating it and chewing it with the fat spurting out and burning in the inside of my mouth until I'd eaten that whole skin. Um, I don't think that's very normal. Uh, 
I did at the time. It didn't seem to me to be strange, even though I would have been mortified if anyone had come around the corner and seen me doing what I was doing. Um, another time, and, and this is even more disgusting, I've never told my wife this story because, um, well, she's the kind of person who, if you tell a story like that, would have a very different reaction from from mine. Um, I'll tell it short. It's it's a, it's a longer story, but at any rate, one time I was I was in uh, <clears throat> Minneapolis on Hennepin Avenue. This is back in 1963, 64. Uh, it was a gray, gray morning, six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning. I'd just gotten off a train, and I was waiting for a bus uh, that was going to leave at eight. So I was wandering on Hennepin. It was just it was early morning. Nothing was open. Hennepin was a relatively seedy uh, uh, street in those days. And I passed by a, a, a diner, a pretty seedy-looking diner, and it had a big sign, you know, this 39 cents for two eggs and coffee and hash browns and toast and sausage, I don't know what else. And even though I'd had breakfast on the train, I decided to go in there. And it was a horrible, dingy, awful place. It was filled with cigarette smoke. It was packed. It was the only place around uh, that was open. People were coughing and hacking, and they'd clearly most of them been up all night on some kind of drinking binge. And I, I found a seat uh, on the counter, at the counter, and ordered the 39-cent meal. I was eating it. It was as greasy as, as you can imagine. It was just awful. Suddenly the guy right next to me vomits into his plate. And then he faints, and his head goes right into the plate, into the vomit. And my reaction... Well, whenever I tell this story uh, to a group of people, I say, what did I do? And they all say, you continue to eat. And I did. I turned my back on the man, and I continued to eat. That's not normal. And if I told my wife that story, uh, she wouldn't be able to eat, and she wouldn't be able to eat for a very, very long time. I'll tell another uh, story, and this is about my drinking behavior. Uh, not in relation to alcohol in a, in a sense but just to contrast this i cannot drink more than a drink and a half of beer or wine i love the taste of a good wine or i love the taste of a good beer but even the best beer in the world or the best wine in the world makes me feel sick after about at the at the most a drink and a half sometimes it's even less than that depending on the strength and the and the quality the best wines make me sick after about a third of a glass I love the taste, and yet at a certain point, my body says, you've had enough. I've never had that feeling with food. Alcoholics have never had that feeling with alcohol. Um, my wife, on the other hand, can't eat too much. Um, sometimes she eats more than she should. Sometimes she figures she has to lose some weight, but... When I first married her, uh, she grew up in a, in a family where food was not, and food was nutrition, uh, and it, it wasn't a, a sort of a, a whole ceremony of love. And, um, and, but my, I remember, and I would cook for my wife when we first got married, and she wouldn't, um, wouldn't like my food. It was too greasy and too uh, spicy. But one day, uh, we were visiting uh, my, my in-laws uh, for supper, and my wife squealed with delight. I'd never seen her squeal over food, but her mother had made spring potatoes. Spring potatoes are those little potatoes that are roasted at the bottom of a roasting pan. So they get kind of crisp on the outside, and they're very soft on the inside. 
And my wife began to devour these spring potatoes. I had not seen her in the time we'd gone out and before we got married and then in the time we were married. I had never seen her uh, eat so voraciously. She'd cut every potato in half and then eat the potato, and she ate quickly. And soon her plate was empty except for one half of a potato. And she cut that potato in half, so she had a quarter of a potato on her fork. She ate that fork. And she ate that potato, and she put the fork down. And I looked at that quarter of a potato. I looked at it, it seems to me, for some time. And then I said very nicely and gently, aren't you going to eat that? And uh, my wife said, no, I'm, I'm full. I said, but, but, you, but you love it. She said, oh, I, I love it. it I, I haven't had it for so long. I'm, I'm so happy my mother made it. I love these things. And then I, almost, I must have yelled at her. I certainly raised my voice. Why aren't you eating it? And my wife looked at me and she said, I'm full. My amazement at this concept that you could be so full that you could not eat something you loved uh, stays with me to this day. It was unbelievable to me that someone wouldn't eat everything, all of what he or she loved. My, my last story in, in this round of stories is a generic one. It's basically my hands bringing food to my mouth. Uh, often it was inappropriately my hands literally bringing my food to my mouth, even when I should have been using some kind of a utensil. Uh, and sometimes it's a fork or it's a spoon. I don't think I ever used a knife to bring food to my mouth, but maybe I did. But the concept, the, the, the generic thing is the hand keeps bringing that food to my mouth, and my mouth keeps eating it, and my mind is saying, I must stop. This is bad for me. I've gained a lot of weight. I shouldn't be eating this. And the hand continues to bring food to the mouth. Now, these are stories of an abnormality that go beyond Normalcy, well, it's, it's abnormal. These are stories, and, and I venture to think that uh, many people who are listening today identify with these stories. At some point or another, I couldn't stop once I started to eat. And this is an experience that with people who suffer from addictions that are thought of as bad, Smoking, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex. Uh, I, I know there are many others, but I'll just mention those. In, in, in those situations, people say, well, this is sickness. This is bad. This is something, this lack of control, this inability to put it down is, is clearly a sickness that has to be treated. Somehow... For overeaters, it's not as understood. But the big book describes this in a number of different places, and it's called The Allergy of the Body. Now, I, when I first started to study the big book, I did it, I, I read the big book for, for six or seven years in the program, and I read it really well, and I, I have a number of copies of it. Uh, my, the copy I bought when I first joined, uh, it was in 1986, it was the, well, that and the AA 12 and 12 were the only 
pieces of um, text that we had. We, you know, we had a book of stories. We had a few books of stories, but we, in a way, we had no other uh, texts or no other books of writings uh, about the steps. So in my in my uh, uh, meetings, we we studied uh, the AA 12 and 12 and the uh, OA big book and the AA big book. But when I when I um, I was relapsing off and on for six or seven years, and I started uh, I was asked to sponsor a man uh, after I was confronted. I, I should say this that I, the tough love that I got from the shyest person in the OA room was something that saved my life, and uh, it's it, that's a whole other aspect of the big book. It's full of tough love. It's full of gritty realism, uh, where 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 uh, people really are able to say to other people, you have a problem, you need help. Uh, in a way, we, we just hug people and say, oh, I hope you're fine, or I love you, and, uh, you know, unconditional love. But, and I, I, I was relapsing. I was in terrible, terrible shape until the shyest person in the room who had prayed, she told me later, uh, for three or four weeks over, the, over me, finally confronted me and said to me, you're you have problems and you've got to do something about them. Well, when, when she did that to me, I began to, to work towards recovery that was very different from the, from the uh, work I had done before. And I was at that point asked to sponsor a man who had just joined OA. Uh, when I met with him, I found out that he had been in AA for 15 years, had been sober for 15 years, and I realized this man had a lot more experience <laughs> at sponsoring than I did uh, and, 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 at, at some, and a recovery from an, uh, an addiction. So I asked him to tell me how he sponsored an AA, and his method of sponsoring an AA was to read the big book as a set of directions for working the steps. Um, I had never thought of that. I thought the big book was an inspirational book and, and filled with fascinating uh, words and, and edifying words and inspirational words, but I, I had never thought of it as a complete guide to working the steps. Well, anyway, we, so we worked together. He had no experience in OA, so I was able to bring whatever OA experience I had, um, and, and we, we just read the book together. Well, we got to, uh, very early on, we got to the passage in the doctor's opinion, which, which I, will, I will refer to in a moment, where we talked about an allergy of the body. And I said to him, uh, I don't have an allergy. I love food. Food doesn't make me sick. It makes me feel great. Um, he said, look up allergy in a dictionary. Well, I did, and it's a fascinating experience to look up allergy in a dictionary because uh, the word allergy, and I have two of the greatest dictionaries in the English language, the, uh, the greatest American dictionary, uh, very old, but the Century Dictionary Encyclopedia, 10 volumes, and the, uh, the greatest British dictionary, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, um, which is, uh, what is 12 volumes. And um, the word allergy doesn't appear in either of those uh, two in the early editions in the early 1900s. It appears only in the supplements. It's a relatively new word. And it originally meant a, an abnormal physical reaction to a substance. It doesn't tell us what kind of physical reaction it is. It just says it's an abnormal one and it's a physical one. I always thought of an allergy as as giving bad reactions that you could see, like rashes or diarrhea or, uh, uh, you know, constriction of the throat, anaphylactic shock, things like that. 
I had never thought of it as simply an abnormal reaction, one that doesn't occur among the general populace, but does occur among specific people. When I began to accept that the word allergy meant more than I had been taught it meant, uh, it opened up a whole new world for me. Um, the reason I didn't understand that is that I was living in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, where the word allergy had taken on a, a meaning that is different from the meaning it originally had when it was first introduced into the English language in the early 1900s and how it was used in the big book. Uh, when, I, when I sponsor, I often don't use the word allergy simply because it has such a different meaning now from what it does in the big book. Um, but I, I, I think it's very important for us to understand what the abnormal reaction that addicts have uh, consists of. Now, the allergy of the body, and I, again, I'm using this as a shorthand, uh, you know, for those, the, for those who have a real problem with the concept of the word allergy, and, and I understand there would be, because, you know, when we grow up with words used in particular ways, um, it's hard to get over that use of the word. So let's not worry about the use of the word allergy. Let's talk about abnormality of the body. It's discussed in the big, big book in, in detail in the doctor's opinion, which is in the prefatory, uh, uh, introductory parts of the big book in, the, uh, in all editions except the first. In the first edition, it was page one, but in all the others, the second, the third, and the current one, the fourth, it's, it's in the uh, pref prefatory material. It's exemplified in Bill's story, and it's discussed in There is a Solution, chapters one and two. The obsession of the mind, which I'll talk about later, is discussed uh, partially, very partially in the doctor's opinion, exemplified in Bill's story, discussed in There is a Solution, and more about alcoholism, uh, chapters one, two, and three. Well, in the doctor's opinion, which is found uh, in Roman numeral in the fourth edition, XXV25, um, and is found in the third edition and the second edition, XXIII23. Um, the doctor's opinion contains two letters from Dr. William Silkworth, who was the person who first treated Bill Wilson, the co-founder uh, of OA, along with uh, Dr. Bob Smith, um, and the person who wrote most of the big book and all of the uh, AA 12 and 12 and other great uh, AA publications. And Dr. Silkworth was, worked, uh, he was a, a psychologist and a, a, and a neurologist, uh, but in the, uh, in the Depression years he began to work at a, at a treatment a hospital for alcoholics in New York. He, he dealt with thousands of them, and he, he was called the little man who, who loved drunks. And, and he did, and he, he despaired over the drunks he treated. He developed a theory about alcoholics that was contrary to the given theories that were around at the time. He published a few papers on that, one in 1933. Um, and, and this concept was very radical. Up until that time, most people who dealt with alcoholics felt that it was, it was a mental problem. It was a problem of self-will. Uh, it was a problem of trying to find a way of getting these people to realize that it was in their best interest to stop. You'd dry them out, you'd sober them up, and then you'd talk to them about what they needed to do to stop 
to, to stop. There was no notion that there's anything wrong with the alcoholic's body. Uh, there was just a notion that it was a moral defect. It was just something that had to be treated psychologically. But Dr. Silkworth began to realize that there was something else going on, and he developed this concept uh, of the allergy of the body. Well, in, in, in the doctor's opinion, it begins with the, the first letter from Dr. Silkworth. is a short one, which is just basically a letter of reference, and it ends with his saying, uh, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves, which is a, a heck of a heck of a reference. And then on page, uh, I'll, I'll refer to the page number in the fourth edition and then the third. In the fourth edition on page uh, 26 in Roman numerals, XXVI, and uh, 24 in Roman numerals, XXIV, after the doctor uh, ends his first reference letter, he says this. Uh, the, the, then the writers of the big book say this. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. We must believe it, according to these people. It's not that we can optionally believe it. We must believe it. Um, people say that there are no musts in the big book, and of course, those of us who are big book fanatics uh, know that that's not true. There are at least... 55 or, or 60 musts that, that, um, that mean you must do this. And what must we believe? That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This was something I, I didn't believe before I started studying the big book, six or, well, about six years, seven years after uh, I had started OA. I, I did not want to believe that the body of that my body was quite as abnormal as my mind. I wanted to believe what all the diets I had ever been on told me, what everyone who writes in magazines, who wrote in magazines, uh, every doctor, every nutritionist seemed to believe at the time, that my problem was eating in excess and therefore that the solution was eating in moderation. I could eat anything so long as I ate in moderation. Sure, I might have to give up certain foods in order to lose weight, but once I lost the weight, I could eat anything I wanted, so long as I ate in moderation. And I was the, uh, I mean, I was the graduate, in a sense, a three-time lifetime member of a popular weight loss program. Uh, every time I lost the weight, I, I adopted a really quite a good eating uh, diet. I lost the weight. Uh, they said, fine, you've, you've reached your goal weight. Now you can go on maintenance. And what that maintenance consisted of was the foods I'd already been eating plus any other foods I wanted in moderation. I could have, once a week, I could have a scoop of ice cream. Once a week, I could have two cookies. Once a week, I could have half a donut. And so I went on this maintenance uh, program, and uh, within weeks, the scoop of ice cream became two scoops of ice cream. Uh, the scoop of ice cream had cookies added to it. Uh, the donut, the half a donut became three quarters of a donut. They began to pile up on me. And finally, I was back to this generic thing of the food coming to my mouth and my saying, why am I eating? I shouldn't be eating. This is terrible. I've got to lose weight. Um, I should have said, by the way, I, I have eaten entire jars of peanut butter. I've eaten entire gallons of uh, ice cream. Uh, I, I just couldn't stop, and I, I haven't done that all my life, uh, every time, but I have done it. 
So I didn't want to accept this concept of the abnormality. And the big book says it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defective. And this was what people were saying. And this is what people say these days about compulsive eaters, that they just have to adjust. They have to learn to eat in moderation. Most of the diets around say that. Um, and the big book goes on. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. I must believe that if I am to follow the founders, the creators of the 12 steps. I must believe that. It's not something that I can just um, have an option on. I must believe that. And there are really four reasons why I must believe it. Uh, the first is, is, is simply, well, I guess there are more, more than four. The first, the first reason is it gives me desperation, an absolute understanding of what my problem is. Secondly, it tells me that it's not my fault. If there's something wrong with my body, I should learn to accept it. If I have a physical disability, and I do, I, it's not a very major one, I, I, uh, I have to wear glasses, I can't see very well, uh, that disability is something I accept. I don't pretend I can see up close without my, uh, in, my left eye, in my right eye without my glasses, because I can't. And I, don't ex- I, I, I don't reject the notion that uh, I can't see distance out of my left eye. I can't. So I don't go around saying to myself, well, who needs glasses? I don't need glasses. I accept the fact that I have glasses. People who have specific allergies, who get anaphylactic shock from shrimps or peanuts, uh, these people don't go around saying, well, I, I don't have this allergy. I guess I can eat peanuts or, or, or shrimp. Actually, there are people who have done that, and they don't live. Uh, so normal people who have disabilities accept their disabilities. If I don't have a leg, I either wear a prosthesis or use uh, some other means of, uh, get, uh, of, of, uh, of um, mobility. I certainly don't try to walk with only one leg. I can't. So accepting the notion that there's something wrong with my body takes away guilt. It's not a mental issue. It's a purely physical problem that I have. And the sooner I accept it, the sooner I'm on my way to recovery. Um, Another reason why it's important and why we must believe it is that it shows us very clearly that if we have a problem in ingesting certain things, we have to abstain from ingesting them if we have an abnormality in that respect. And I'll go on now because uh, I have to uh, talk about what that allergy consists of uh, before I go on uh, to give the other reasons why the allergy of the body is important to uh, accept. So the big book goes on. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. 
It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Well, let's go on and, and to see what the doctor says the allergy is. Remember, an allergy is simply an abnormality of the body. Uh, I point out that um, right at the bottom of, of the page I was just reading, it says, more often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached. And then right across the page, just at the bottom of the next page, uh, XXVII 27 in the 4th edition and XXV in the 2nd and 3rd edition, the, the uh, doctor says, because this is now the, this, the doctor's second letter in, in smaller, uh, smaller uh, font, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. We're now on, on the next page, 28 XXVII in the 4th and XXVI 26 in the 3rd and 2nd, craving for liquor. The big book takes for granted as I think it's pretty clear that AA takes for granted and most 12-step programs take for granted, that you abstain from what it is that causes you the allergy, from what it is that you're allergic to. You simply stop drinking, you stop taking drugs, you stop gambling, you stop indulging in the sexual um, uh, uh, actions that, that the, uh, constitute your particular problem. You just stop. Uh, we don't have as clear a concept of that in a way. We're beginning to, but I don't think we have as clear a concept. Um, even some of our literature seems to suggest that, that some of us uh, recover while working the steps, even though we may not be abstinent. But I think, I think that that's changing in a way, especially with the changes in the definitions of abstinence. But anyway, the doctor goes on. He says this. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago in, in the articles I spoke about, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is, and, and he's using big words here, is a manifestation of an allergy. A manifestation is a symptom. It's, it's how it expresses itself. And an allergy is what I talked about, an, abnorm, an abnormal reaction to a physical substance. So he's saying that the action of alcohol on these people is the symptom, is, is a symptom, what happens to them is a symptom of their abnormal reaction. It is what, what their abnormal reaction is. And then he says, what is it? He says, the phenomenon of craving is what he talks about. Now, phenomenon is, is, another, is another word that uh, needs uh, some explanation. A phenomenon is simply an... Um, an occurrence for which there is no known explanation. It's something that happens, and we don't know why. So that's the phenomenon. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So what he is saying is that when alcohol goes into their bodies, they get a craving that is different from what normal people get. And he goes on in the next paragraph, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. And he goes on to the bottom of that page, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that it, it runs away from them. They don't see it. it. They just feel it. 
that while they admit it is injurious, while they admit that it hurts them, these are alcoholics, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I used to think my wife was sick because she didn't like food as much as I did. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, with, without, with, without adverse effects. And I don't know about you, but there have been many, many times in my life when I have taken foods into my mouth and I have said, I'm home. This, has, this is what eases my ache, whatever my ache is at that particular time. This is what makes me feel good. Depending on the experience, on the time, it might be something that that feeds my my taste buds in a salty way. It might be in a sweet way. It might be crunchy. It might be creamy. But whatever it is, at a certain point, I have it. I know that's it. That's what's making me feel right. I feel much better. Sense of ease and comfort. Now, this has been true whether I'm full or or not full. That feeling of ease and comfort exists in me or has existed in me whether or not I've eaten too much. But with alcohol, for instance, I might have a sip of a drink and love it, but at a certain point I get a sense of unease and discomfort if I get too much of it, in the same way my wife does if she eats too much. Uh, And the same way most normal people, they can say, I love this, but I can't eat anymore. I I didn't tell the story, but it's it's, it's a story about my wife again, just as as a contrast. I've gone to restaurants with my wife, and she she loves chocolate. She eats one piece of chocolate a day, sometimes two, but she loves it, and she needs that chocolate. She's a chocoholic in that respect, that she needs that one shot. But we've gone to fancy restaurants, and they bring the dessert tray around, and she orders the most chocolatey thing around. And and I've seen it happen. She bites into that piece of whatever it is, and she says, oh, oh, this is so good. And she eats it, and she eats half of it, and then she puts her fork down. And she says, I'll, I'll have this tomorrow. I'll take this home. I'm full. And, you know, for me, the miracle of OA is best example, is, is one of the ways of exemplifying the miracle of the recovery that I, that I have now after following after accepting that I have an allergy to the body and doing something about it, the miracle is that I look at her while she's eating that stuff, and I don't even want to taste it as good as it is to her. And I'm happy for her that she's enjoying herself without feeling the least bit um, jealous of her. And at the end of the day, the miracle is that when she puts her fork down, I don't want to finish it. I want her to have the rest of it tomorrow. I, I didn't think that that experience was possible, but the 12 steps have given it to me for almost 20 years now. Um, so the, big, the, the doctor goes on. He says, uh, we, we talked about sense of ease and comfort, and he says, after they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm re- a resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, 
there's very little hope of his recovery. And he goes on to the bottom of that same page, uh, 29XXIX in the, in the fourth edition, XXVII in the third, 27. Um, right at the bottom, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. Then he <clears throat> he tells the stories that of the stereotypical alcoholics of a business meeting, set and uh, and uh, they're they're sober and uh, very important, and then suddenly they take a drink and they can't uh, keep the appo- uh, the appointment. It reminds me of uh, my first uh, entry into OA was occasioned by a man who had been a gutter drunk and had joined AA and miracles had happened to him. He had been a grade nine dropout and then he became a got his once he joined AA, he got his Ph.D. and um, became a, quite a wealthy man. And he was a mentor of mine in many respects, almost uh, well, like a big brother too. Excuse me. And um, I had had this weight problem for so many years. He, he had left uh, my hometown of Winnipeg and then came back to visit. And uh, I I had uh, tried all kinds of ways to lose weight. I was gaining more and more weight, even though I had been in this diet program um, and um, had done certain things in my life that I thought would get rid of the of the need to eat and would keep me at a good weight, and they weren't working. I was uh, getting fatter than I'd ever been. Um, I was bulging out of uh, pants that were huge, and I was uh, bulging out of shirts that were 2XLs uh, that I bought from the big and tall store. And my friend uh, came to visit. He said, why don't you... Uh, why don't you join OA? And I, I, I said, I, I've never heard of it. And he said, it's always <clears throat> anonymous. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I said to him, you know, Wally, never in my life have I ever had a, an appointment, a business meeting set for Thursday and eaten a donut on a Wednesday and woke up in a hotel room on Friday not knowing where I'd been for the last two days. Those were the stories that he had told me and all of his friends had told me. <clears throat> And thankfully, very thankfully, he said to me, if you don't start taking your food as seriously as I take my alcohol, you're going to die. And, you know, that really changed my life. Because this notion of taking my food as seriously as he took his alcohol allowed me to graduate into the ranks of people who took seriously their addiction. And uh, even though it took me six or seven years to understand what my problem was, um, that sense of urgency coming from an alcoholic who had led a gutter existence kind of life, I had never done that. He grew up unloved. He grew up, uh, you know, in in the gutter. He became an alcoholic at a young age. Uh, He introduced me to all kinds of other people who had been gutter drunks and had pulled themselves out of the gutter through AA or had been pulled out of the gutter through AA. Uh, and that I, I, who was a middle-class guy who had not suffered a great deal in my life, but was extremely fat, uh, could take myself as seriously as these guys did, uh, really changed my life. But that's, anyway, those are the examples that the doctor uses. And he, he goes on in page uh, XXX30 uh, in the fourth edition, XXVIII in the uh, third and second edition, 28, says, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. He goes on um, 
and it talks about all kinds of alcoholics. You know, they're psychopaths and uh, um, the, the deniers and manic depressives and uh, the people who, who, uh, who swear off for a while and then go back to it. They're the normal people. And then he goes on the second last paragraph. He says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. What he means by that, but he has only one symptom in common. And what is it? They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon, the unexplained occurrence, of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation, the symptom of an allergy, an abnormal reaction, which differentiates these people, makes it, sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, or been, if you're American, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated, permanently got rid of. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Uh, this paragraph is an important paragraph in the history of OA. Uh, for the first uh, two years of OA, uh, from 60 to 62, maybe 61, but I think it's 62, um, uh, Roseanne, uh, the, the founder of OA, um, had uh, developed, uh, uh, and OA was, I, I think, about 15 groups at the time. People developed a bunch of diets that they were following, but uh, many of them were following a, a, a method of uh, losing weight, which consisted of uh, chewing gum or eating celery or hot air popcorn or carrots or something, uh, drinking diet drinks, uh, um, keeping their mouths busy uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the day, and then eating moderate meals uh, uh, during their, their uh, you know, three meals a day or four meals a day or whatever. But they were, they were uh, always eating. And uh, Roseanne went to a, an, a, an open AA meeting where they read this paragraph. And they read the words, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Roseanne realized, and she wrote a letter to the groups. It's found in, in uh, her uh, wonderful book, Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, OA, uh, OA book. This gave her the insight that OA was lacking at this time. This is the early days of OA. The equivalence of sobriety, the equivalent of sobriety. And she wrote a letter saying, uh, this is the word we'll use. This is abstinence. We have to abstain from compulsive eating. Um, and she suggested at that time, we, we shouldn't be eating between meals. And we should eat three meals a day with nothing in between. Now, this met with some resistance. There's a whole history that she gives. But at any rate, the concept of abstinence was born from this paragraph. And uh, we've, we've now, in OA, uh, defined abstinence as, as being more than abstaining from compulsive eating, which it used to be. The only definition was abstaining from compulsive eating. But it now has to do with working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight, a very, very important uh, addition. We can't fool ourselves anymore about whether we're abstinence. We can't be overweight or underweight and say that we're abstinence for any, uh, abstinent for any period of time. We have to be working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight in order to say that we are abstinent. And I think that's, that's a very good development in a way. I'm very happy that the group conscience has agreed on it. Well, that's, the doctor has, talks about this phenomenon, this unexplained incidence of cravings, this craving. Uh, Bill's story, Chapter 1, talks about that. Uh, it just gives examples of the fact that for the, with with uh, with all the reasons in the world not to drink, when he drinks, he goes completely bonkers, and he just can't stop once he starts. 
page five, he says, I saw I could not take so much as one drink. Um, and he did not understand, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, uh, he didn't understand why he couldn't stop from taking that first drink. But it became clear to him that once he started, he couldn't stop. In the chapter, uh, there is a solution. Uh, the, the big book talks about the alcoholic. And on page 20, uh, right at the bottom, the, the big book makes distinctions. or talks about moderate drinkers and hard drinkers. And it says, moderate drinkers uh, have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. We have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome. Excuse me, I may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? So the big book is defining the alcoholic as described in this book for whom the 12 steps have a solution. He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. So there are all kinds of moderate drinkers who may be real alcoholics. What is the distinguishing factor? But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. And they give an example of the people who drink. If he drinks for a day, he frequently becomes disgusting, even dangerously antisocial. Um, page 22. They, they ask the question why he takes the first drink. I'll get to that. But at the bottom of page 22, it says, We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're, we are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. And that's the phenomenon of craving. Once you take some into your system, Something happens, both in the bodily and mental sense. And I would say that the body is the body develops the cravings and the mind can't stop the body. It's as if, well, it's as if I tried to stop myself from breathing or I tried to stop myself from blinking or I tried to stop my heart from beating. I can't do it. I can hold my breath for some time, less and less as I get older. I can keep my eyes open for a few seconds. But at a certain point, my body says, regardless of your willpower, I'm doing what I have to do to keep myself alive, to keep my eyes lubricated, to keep my heart going, to, uh, to take air into my body. And the body takes control. I cannot order my body around. This is what the doctor is talking about. This is the first half of being an addicted person. We must believe it, that at a certain point, our body takes over and overpowers our mind. And what is that point for the alcoholic? It's when he or she takes the first drink. The craving occurs. Now, you know what? 
this was written at a time when the people uh, the people who wrote this book and the people who agreed with this book were gutter drunks, and their experience was one drink would get to them. But they also include throughout the book invitations to others to stop before it gets that bad, uh, to stop uh, at a time when you, you can see the symptoms, but they don't occur all the time, uh, but they occur sometimes, and, uh, and, to be, and to be wary that if they're occurring sometimes, they're going to occur all the time if you get worse. Um, so, you know, I had not become morbidly obese. I didn't weigh 400. I probably didn't even weigh 300 pounds before I joined this program. Um, there were times when I could eat in moderation, although a day later or five days later, uh, eating something uh, would cause me to eat uncontrollably again. Um, but the concept is, if it happens to you a few times, if there are times when you just can't stop once you've started, you probably have the allergy of the body. You probably have a problem of the phenomenon of craving. So I want to go back to that paragraph about abstinence, and I want to talk about the other reasons. And I'm almost finished talking about the allergy of the body, but I want to go on from the allergy of the body to talk about what abstinence means. Um, we, in OA, have the distinct disadvantage in one way and the advantage in another of being a program that brings in people who have many different kinds of things that they are allergic to. We are not... Chocoholics Anonymous, Fataholics Anonymous, Sugaraholics Anonymous, White Flour Holics Anonymous, Gluten, uh, uh, Gluten Anonymous. We are Overeaters Anonymous. It also includes undereaters, uh, people uh, with, uh, with uh, anorexia. Bulimics um, are overeaters, they're not undereaters, so I, I don't classify them in the same way as I would classify an anorexic. Bulimics eat as much as I used to. Uh, they just hide it differently. They hide it. They get rid of the food before it uh, has an effect on their bodies. Um, but at any rate, one of the main difference in a way, and it's probably the reason why we haven't been able to carry our message as well as some of the other uh, programs which have very clear things that they're, uh, quote, allergic to, unquote, that they that they abstain from, is that we've discovered that we are all different and that we are allergic, we get abnormal reactions from different things. There's a lot of overlap, uh, but I know that in any large group of uh, over compulsive eaters, uh, members of OA, there are people, there's at least one person who can eat things I can't eat and that I can eat things that other people can't eat. Uh, so that even though there may be a lot of overlap, what I must abstain from is different from what you must abstain from. It may be similar in many respects, but it isn't going to be exactly the same. And because of that, uh, it's, it's harder for us to accept the concept of abstinence. It's probably harder for the medical and, and uh, professional um, prof uh, the medical and nutritions and uh, medical profession and dietitians and and other people in the medical uh, helping uh, groups to understand us uh, and to diagnose us because what I can eat may be something you can't eat and what you uh, can eat may be something I can't eat. And therefore, it's not as if you can say to an alcoholic, just don't, 
drink alcohol in any form whatsoever. Say to a drug addict, just don't take any form of mind-altering drugs um, or prescribed mind, uh, unprescribed mind-altering drugs. Um, you can't say that. Uh, so it, it, it's a problem for us. It's not one that I know how to solve uh, other than to say that each one of us has to search in our own hearts and through our own experience to know what it is that causes the phenomenon of craving. I want to go back to the reasons why we must believe that we have this physical problem, um, that our bodies are as abnormal as our mind. I said it's important because it takes away guilt. It's our bodies and not our minds. And I, I do want to say this. No matter how it occurred, it may have occurred because I abused my body in many ways. It may have occurred because I was weaned at an early age, because when I was growing up, you know, you have to wean the kids uh, before they might have been ready. Uh, it might have been because I grew up in a family that had genetic predispositions to, to uh, this, this, and I, I think, I think that, that probably is true for me. Uh, almost my, my entire family had uh, eating problems. Um, it, it may be that I was that I created it by eating the things that I was eating that I was given when I was a kid, and that I continued to eat when I was an adult, and that I created it. But I know this: that my body is different from normal people. Um, sadly, as as, as obesity uh, uh, spreads throughout much of the world, um, it may be less abnormal than than it was. Uh, but uh, it still is an abnormality. It's not the way the body is designed to function. The body is designed to function the way that it eats in moderation things that it needs for proper uh, nutrition and uh, to keep it alive, uh, but no more than that, and that it doesn't develop unhealthy um, uh, cravings that cause it to eat more than it needs and thus become more disabled in other ways. Um, so... Uh, it's important for me to understand that there should be no guilt. It's, uh, and another reason why it's important for me to accept the notion of the abnormality of the body is that it shows that I must abstain from that to which I have an abnormal reaction. I must abstain from it. If I get cravings every time I eat certain things, then the way not to get those cravings is not to eat those things. It's obvious. Um, it, it's a blinding flash of the obvious because it, it wasn't that obvious to me for seven years, six or seven years in this program, but it is obvious. It's obvious to any alcoholic. It's obvious to any drug addict. You just don't do it. If you abstain from these things, then you won't get the body kicking in and saying, more, more, I want more. And you can't stop me from wanting more. I need it, I want it, and you, your, you the mind, can't stop me. Um, so this notion of abstinence is absolutely essential. And then in OA, another reason why it's so important to accept the abnormality of the body is unless we do, we will never know what it is we have to abstain from. So I want to talk about that just for, for a few minutes. Uh, the allergy to the body is, is uh, absolutely significant from the point of view of figuring out what it is that we abstain from. The big book takes for granted, and I, I think OA should take for granted, that we become abstinent before we work the steps. We dry out. And uh, I, I, I take that for granted. 
it's uh, it's foolish to think that you can continue to eat and be rigorously honest in working steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. If you're fooling yourself about your problem, how in the world can you be honest with anyone else uh, or even honest with yourself about all the other issues that are going on in your life? Um, but I'll say no more about that. I'll, I'll only talk about uh, how to abstain. People say, oh, the alcoholics can drink, but we can't. Uh, b- 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 they, they, they just don't have to drink, but we have to eat. And, of course, that's not true. Alcoholics have to drink, but they cannot drink alcohol. They can drink. They must drink some liquids. All of us need liquids. We need water more than we need food. We can last without uh, food a lot longer than we can last without water. So alcoholics must drink. They just can't drink any substance to which they have an allergic reaction. And that's true for me. I can eat all kinds of things. I just can't eat substances to which I have an allergic reaction. How do we know? And I should say, by the way, in OA literature, it's not easily found, but you can find this notion of the allergy of the body on pages 2 and 3 of the OA 12 and 12, um, what, where it says uh, on page 2, what all of us have in common is that our bodies and minds seem to send us signals about food which are quite different from those the normal eater receives. Uh, no matter how adept we become in facing life's problems, we will always have these abnormal tendencies. They say, compulsive eaters often have an abnormal reaction when we overindulge. We can't quit. A normal eater gets full and loses interest in food. We compulsive overeaters crave more. And uh, the uh, pamphlet, A Dignity of Choice, goes into this in much more detail. And, and those two represent the group conscience of OA. So it is clear in OA, it's clear, although I don't think all of our literature makes it clear, but it certainly is clear from pages 2 and 3 of the uh, OA 12 and 12 and from, from the Dignity of Choice pamphlet that um, this concept of uh, abstaining from substances, this concept of the allergy of the body, even though it's not used, the word, the word allergy isn't used, but craving is used. This concept of craving is, uh, is part of uh, the OA group conscience. Well, how do we develop a plan of eating that allows us to abstain from the things that give us abnormal uh, uh, reactions, the phenomenon of craving? Well, it, it, I don't think it's easy. I think it requires a great deal of thought and a, and a great deal of honesty. Uh, it, it's helpful to work with another person to, to get an understanding of that and often to work with uh, an understanding professional. There are certainly a lot of professionals around who are not understanding and do not accept this concept of abstaining from particular foods. Um, but, in, you know, examine, I have examined my own conscience. I've examined my own eating behaviors. Uh, when I first uh, embraced the notion of the allergy of the body, I made a list of my binge foods, and that's, that's a good place to start. What are the things that I have found myself eating uncontrollably? And it wasn't hard to make that kind of list. Goose skin was among them, as you, as you could tell uh, as, from my story. But I, I made a list, and it, 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 you know, I had three uh, uh, sweet uh, uh, binge foods, uh, shortbread, uh, ice cream, and uh, cheesecake. These were things that once I started, I, I never wanted to stop them. They gave me pleasure. Uh, my body wanted more. 
uh, only really severe social constraints or the, or the absence of them, if they had all been eaten, prevented me uh, from eating all that was available. But if I could do it secretly, if it was available, I would eat it. I have eaten boxes of shortbread. I've, I've already said that I've, I've eaten gallons of ice cream. Um, I don't know if, if any of you have ever done that, but uh, when I, we have cartons of ice cream in the house, I would eat from the other end so no one would notice that I had eaten it. Um, I, uh, that was an easy list to make. And then on the other side, I made lists of a bunch of salty things that I found myself overeating and binging on. It ranged from things like fried chicken, deep fried chicken or any, any deep fried product, uh, french fries, uh, um, uh, deep fried chicken, deep fried, uh, I don't know what. Uh, I should have mentioned donuts, by the way, is another uncontrollable thing. They're, they're deep fried as well. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, popcorn with butter on it. I, I used to joke, and it's true. I, I used to put popcorn on my butter. The more butter, the better. Uh, and, and, and even if I went to a movie theater where they served, you know, the, 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 the fake butter, I still wanted more of it. And I would eat and eat and eat that stuff. Uh, so I made that list. And I did this with this guy who had just joined OA and was teaching me the big book while I was working with him on OA issues. Um, he made his list of binge foods. I made my list of binge foods. I, I went further uh, and I said, are there, there seems to be one major common ingredient there. That, that's fat. Fat mixed with salt and fat mixed with sugar. I, I don't know if I could eat fat on its own. Uh, well, I, I, mean, I needed something with it, uh, like skin, <laughs> uh, the goose skin or, or, or sugar or, or, or salt, the popcorn or the shortbread. But I, I found that for me, the, the, the biggest ingredient was fat. I didn't eat hard candy very much. I wasn't addicted to hard candy, which was only sugar. I was addicted to sweets that contained fat. Um, I didn't eat salt, uh, but I was addicted to foods that had fat and salt in them. And, you know, there's just recently a book been published on, on the issue on how fast food uh, producers have, have uh, known about the addiction to fat, salt, and sugar um, uh, uh, for a very long time and have catered to that. The exact amount of fat mixed with the exact amount of sugar creates the perfect fast food that can't be stopped, that people can't stop eating. Um, you know, wasn't there a potato manufacturer who, potato chip manufacturer who had, I bet you can't just eat one. And, and that, that's true for me. So I, I, I realized that fat was my biggest problem and I had to find a way to reduce the amount of fat in things, and I, and I did. I developed my own plan of eating related to that. It's not worth it to go into great detail, detail about my own particular plan of eating, uh, only uh, to say that I analyzed my eating behaviors carefully, my eating uh, carefully. And I began to abstain from foods that contain high amounts of fat, especially when mixed with sugar or, or salt. I abstained, you know, in order to lose weight as well, I abstained from foods that had high caloric content, um, and uh, I worked the steps. Um, after about six months, uh, I'd I had not lost a lot of weight, but I had worked the steps, and I no longer wanted the foods that used to beckon to me. The, the problem had been removed from me, uh, but, my, uh, but I hadn't lost much weight, and it was time for me to sponsor more. It was time for me to carry the message. And my sponsor, he had lost a lot of weight, and my, and, and my friend and I, he wasn't my sponsor, we were both sort of working together, but my friend said, uh, well, how can you carry the message well if, you, if you're still fat? It's right. 
absolutely right. How can I carry the message? How can I talk about how wonderful the 12 steps are if I don't look like the 12 steps are wonderful? Um, and, and so I began to analyze my, uh, my uh, food more carefully. Around the same time, a few other things came, came through. I went back to pages 2 and 3 of the OA 12 and 12. And on page 2 and 3, right at the bottom of page 2 and beginning of page 3, uh, it says, Clearly, if we are to live free of the bondage of compulsive eating, we must abstain from all foods and eating behaviors which cause us problems. If we don't ever overeat, we won't trigger the reaction that makes us crave more. So I said eating behaviors. I also realized that I, I heard a, a, a tape from uh, Joe and Charlie where uh, the AA speakers, who, where, where Charlie describes that the taste of alcohol satisfied him even before it went into his, uh, went, uh, into his neck, his gullet, and down to his stomach that the smell, the texture, the flavor began to solve the problem that he already had. I put that together, uh, also together with the fact that I was, I was at my dentist, and, and it was early in the morning. I was having a, another crown put in, um, and, and my dentist said, uh, you, 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 you didn't have any breakfast this morning. Well, I had had breakfast, and I said that as, as you can only say when your mouth is filled with instruments, you know, <laughs> dentists seem to understand you even when you have your mouth full of instruments. And, and I, I said, what makes you think that I haven't had my breakfast? He says, because you're salivating, and you don't salivate unless you're hungry. I was salivating, and why was I salivating? There were things going on in my mouth. I began to realize that one of my eating problems, one of my eating behaviors, was that when I had things in my mouth and I was chewing or sucking on them, I felt better. Uh, I had been following up until this time. I'd been, you know, I'd eliminated foods that had high fat content, that had fat and sugar and fat and salt in them. I didn't want them anymore. But I had followed the idea of keeping my mouth busy by chewing celery or carrots or hot air popcorn or or something like that throughout the day. This was the, you know a diet I had been on many years. It seemed to work well. Kept my mouth busy, chewing gum, things like that. So I was always salivating. My mouth was always busy. I'm the kind of guy who, you know, you get something in, uh, going on in your teeth or something, you know, a little hole, a little chip. The tongue is out there and it's working on it and it's trying to figure out what's going on. So I, um, I began to realize that I was keeping my mouth too busy that my quantities were increasing at my regular meal times when I was ingesting things with calories because I felt hungry. My, my mouth wanted more. My mouth wanted the texture and the experience of eating. I also realized that because volume was an issue, I had to deal with volume. And one of my volume issues was that I liked to, to be filled up to the top of my neck. Uh, figuratively, but you know what I mean. The, I, I had to be filled up completely, just packed. Uh, and th that my body, uh, if, if my body didn't experience that, it wanted more. It craved that. So I had to find a way to restrict the volume that I had, uh, I was taking in. And I, I, I figured on this concept of, um, of uh, eating up to my belly button, which I was told by a, a nurse a few years ago at a big book study, that uh, is impossible because the stomach uh, be uh, uh, begins at the belly button. But uh, at any rate, uh, it, meant, it made sense to me. I, I know the difference between eating up to my belly button and eating up to the top of my neck. And, 
And so I just adopted those two simple things. I stopped eating between meals. I stopped chewing or sucking anything between meals. And I stopped eating when my when I felt as if I was full up to my belly button. And those two things caused me to lose weight. They they just stopped the volume issue right off the bat. Over the years, I've I've added more things to the foods I can't eat. I've added fake ice cream. Um ice cream that is perfectly healthy or, or, or a food that's perfectly healthy and good for me, but that tastes too much like ice cream. And I have found, uh, I have found that, that uh, that kind of food creates cravings in me regardless of the fact that it has a low caloric content and has nothing in it that, that, uh, that I have had to abstain from because of the substance. Uh, just, uh, just to explain what I mean, I, I, you know, you can make a, a frozen fruit uh, fake ice cream by, by using a little bit of artificial sweetener, not even a lot, and a frozen fruit and, and skim milk yogurt, uh, you know, a fat-free yogurt. And uh, put it in a big blender, it, it becomes like a creamy, wonderful taste. Well, I started to make that. I loved it so much that I craved more and more of it. And I wanted more and more, so I said, I can't eat this stuff. So I found that's an eating behavior of texture and taste um, and, and, and maybe temperature, too. Maybe the coldness has something to do with it. But that I found I could not eat. I was eating hot air popcorn as one of my carbohydrates at, at, a, at a regular meal. But I was finding myself wanting to finish the bowl. And I could do that while still eating up to my belly button and no more. But I spoke to a friend of mine who had been absent for many, many years longer than I had been, much more experienced in the program. He said, Laurie, if you find yourself needing to finish it all, you should stop eating any of it. And so I did that, and I continue to do that to this day. When I find myself wanting all of it and not able to stop wanting all of it, then I figure it's something that I have become addicted to. I think that that's an eating behavior uh, more than it is a substance. It's, and by eating behavior, I mean other senses of my body are involved other than the um, the the the, the 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 part of me that wants the fat and the sugar and the fat and the salt. So when I work with sponsees, uh, I, I I have a very open mind. I I don't like to. I think it's improper, and our, our dignity of choice pamphlet makes it clear that it's it's not part of it's the group conscience of OA that it's not appropriate. I don't put my eating plan onto them. They, have, they are different from me, and they've got to discover their own problems and their own concerns and their own uh, allergies. And, and so uh, while I, my experience might help someone form their own plan, and I tell my experience, I don't in any way, shape, or form uh, suggest that they should adopt mine. And it is contrary to the group conscience of OA for one OA member to say to another, if I am to sponsor you, you must adopt my eating plan. That, that's contrary. Look at the Dignity of Choice pamphlet and you'll see it's contrary to the group conscience of OA. And I, I think it's very bad for that person because their eating problem may be very different from mine. I have a very close friend in OA who, who can eat butter. I can't eat butter. I know that if I start ingesting butter, even a pat of butter at a meal, I will graduate to eating all the foods, that uh, all my binge foods. Um, Something about dairy products, uh, dairy fats that does things to me that doesn't do it to my friend who can have a pat of butter and not care. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything to him. So why should I adopt his eating plan and why should he adopt mine? He can eat butter, I can't. 
and um, and uh, it would be improper for him to suggest that I should adopt his eating plan, and just as improper for me to suggest to him that he should adopt mine. But one thing I do do, I'm, I'm a lawyer, I have the right to do it, I cross-examine my sponsees and make sure that they are being honest. If they list their binge foods, I want to make sure that they're listing the binge foods and identifying the real ingredients in those binge foods. I've met so many people in OA who think that their problem is sugar, but when you ask them what their binge foods are, will list not hard candy or straight sugar out of the bowl, but will list all the foods that contain fat, all the, the cakes and the donuts and things like that. And when I see people like that and I meet them, and if they're still fat, and if I'm in a position to observe them as I have, because I've been very active in a way eating, I often see them put fat and salt onto their plates, lots of it. And, of course, they're abstaining because they abstain only from sugar, but they're eating clearly a substance, I say clearly, it seems to me pretty obvious, a substance that continues to cause them cravings in other respects. Um, You know, there are all kinds of eating, uh, suggested eating uh, programs that people bring along, gray sheet, blue sheet, orange sheet, uh, you know, the suggested, the the samples and the dignity of choice. Um, And all of them are fine if they, in fact, allow you to abstain from the particular things that cause you the particular problems. Um, they don't work if they help someone else but not you. Uh, you, you know, so I, 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 it's very important to, to work on it yourself and to be honest with yourself. A rule of thumb is if you think you can never give this stuff up, you better give it up. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a very simple rule, and it has certainly worked for me. If you can't stand the idea of never eating X, you should not be eating X. As simple as that. Uh, What I have seen in OA, sadly, is that people have adopted eating plans from other sources based on all kinds of wonderful and weird, sometimes weird and sometimes wonderful theories, who do not look at their own experiences. And therefore, they keep on eating some things that cause them uncontrollable cravings. They think they're abstinent, but they're not, because they haven't abstained from the substances, the ingredients, and the eating behaviors, which all of them, which cause them uncontrollable cravings. If they have not achieved a healthy body weight, if they're not on the way to achieving a healthy body weight, and if they are still, still have this sense that they don't want to give up X, then they have not achieved the recovery that is promised by the big book and is promised in our program. That recovery is, I don't want it. Uh, Just a few more words, and then I want to get on to this concept of I don't want it. Um, I I think it's, um, it's important to understand. I mean, we don't know why we have this allergy, but there are lots of studies that seem to indicate that we do have this allergy. Um, and, 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 and it might be genetic. I mean, there's the concept that we have these uh, fat cells, and when, we, when we've been fat, that the fat cells, we have many more fat cells than, than, um, than people who are normal. Even if we've lost our weight, those fat cells still continue to exist. They just don't have any fat in them, and the body still wants more. There are all kinds of other studies, and, and I, I don't want to go into them because I have no opinion on uh, or OA has no opinion on outside issues. But that's where I think it's really important. We, we have to abstain. 
So the allergy of the body is we get, uh, we get cravings, uncontrollable cravings, when we ingest certain substances or we indulge in certain eating behaviors. And we must abstain from those substances and those eating behaviors in order to be sober and to clean our bodies. But that's not our real problem. And that's so important. The real problem we have is not that we can't stop once we've started, which is the allergy of the body. Not that we get the cravings, because obviously any person who has an allergic reaction to a substance simply has to abstain from it. If I knew I would die but if I ate shrimp or if I ate peanuts, I would not eat shrimp or peanuts. I, wouldn't, I, I might regret it, but I wouldn't kill myself over it, literally or figuratively. Um, and, and, and it seems to me obvious that any normal person who realized that ingesting certain foods would cause uncontrollable cravings to him or her, would simply stop eating those foods and be quite content with the rest of the foods that he or she could eat. Why not? You're normal. You got a problem. You don't eat it. You get an anaphylactic shock by eating shrimp. You don't eat shrimp. You get diabetes if you continue to eat certain kinds of foods. You don't eat those foods. I mean, any normal person would know that. My wife, the chocoholic, uh, loves chocolate. Um, but if she were told and, and, and believed that chocolate caused her innumerable problems, that she would die if she ate it, she's the same person. She wouldn't eat it. She would maybe mourn it, but she wouldn't eat it. Because why would you do anything? Why would you eat poison? So accepting the notion that we have an allergy of the body allows us to identify the foods that are poison to us. But our real problem is that even once we have identified those foods, we can't stop from eating them. And the big book makes that clear. In the, in the doctor's opinion, um, he, he, he talks about it, um, but uh, he, he doesn't go into great detail. It was his invention, though, his, his understanding of it. He talks a lot more about the uh, allergy of the body, but he does talk about um, uh, that passage I talked to you, I, I quoted about men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. He says, and this is on page XXVIII in the fourth edition, 28, in the fourth and 26 XXVI in the third and second edition. They are, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless irritable and discontented between their drinking unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So they, they emerge remorseful from the well-known stages of esprit with a firm resolution not to drink again, but they get restless, irritable, and discontented, and then they know that the only thing that could give them ease and comfort is the alcohol. The real problem that we have is being able to stop from starting. That is our real problem. And um, the, the, the doctor analyzed it. He doesn't talk about it too much in the doctor's opinion. Bill's story shows it. Bill talks about all kinds of things. He, he actually ends up uh, on, on page five. I, he says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Uh, before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I'm in business. I think she wrote it into the family Bible. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know it. I had even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? 
I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. He tries again. Uh, he passed. The, he laughed at the gin mills. One day on page six, one day I walked into a cafe to telephone, and in no time I was beating in the bar asking myself how it happened. Um, but the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to battle to do battle was not there. Uh, my brain raced uncontrollable, terrible sense of impending calamity. Um, he he keeps going. He he tries to hide the drinks, but he can't. Um, and uh, he on page seven he goes into hospital, and that's the Dr. Silkris Hospital. He says, "I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I have been seriously ill, bodily and mentally." And he says, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I uh, went to town regularly, even made a little uh, money. Surely this was the answer self-knowledge, but it wasn't. And he goes back to drink. And he goes back to the uh, town's hospital, the... the, uh, Dr. Silkworth, and Dr. Silkworth says uh, he's doomed. Either you're going to have to lock him up uh, or he's going to die of alcoholic insanity. And that's his step one, because he knows that not only can't he drink, he knows he can't stop from drinking alcohol. And uh, it's then discussed in There is a Solution, where they say on page uh, 23, well, well, let's uh, page 22. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle, a, a horrible experience with all its attendant, its ongoing suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay in the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We're not sure why. Sure why a certain, once a certain point is reached, little can be done from. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. And he says we're equally positive once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system. I read this already. Something happens both in the bodily and mentally, mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. Page 23, they say, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, and this was a revelation to me, even though I'd read it many times before, when I started studying it with my friend, uh, the, the AA guy who joined OA, this was the revelation. There, because I had already accepted that I, that I had the allergy of the body. When I read this, I realized why it is my problem. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic center is in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, bender, the chances are he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. And sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc, the chaos, and alcoholics drinking bug create. They sound like the philosophy of a man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious, false reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. 
there is the obsession, and this is the first use of the word obsession, that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. Now, an obsession is an idea that takes control of the mind and, and blots out all other ideas. And the mental obsession that is discussed here, well, it, it says on page 24, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. And it goes on in, in uh, italics. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We were, out, we were without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us, to stop us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted, replaced with the old threadbare ideas, idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There's complete, complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps him from putting his hand on a hot stove. The illusion, the obsession, is that I don't have the problem of the body, that I can have a little bit and it won't hurt. This is fed, literally, by most diets, most magazines, most doctors, most nutritionists who talk about eating in moderation. You can eat anything. Uh, the latest diets allow you to eat your binge foods in moderation, even while you're on the diet. Most people do not understand the notion of the allergy of the body, and therefore, they don't understand the idea of the mental obsession. They think you can eat anything in moderation. The idea is to get you into a state where you can eat moderately. Now, this is true for a lot of people. So it, it's validated by the experience of a lot of people who do, oh, 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 is this all I need to eat? This is a reasonable amount of protein. This is a reasonable amount of carbohydrate. Oh, now that I know that, that's all I'll eat. My wife's one of those. If, if, I mean, she doesn't gain weight, but if she did gain weight, she would simply, oh, okay, I, I guess I'll just not eat a bit now. Uh, cut down on my eating. There are all kinds of people who join the weight loss programs who only need that. They don't have the mental obsession they just have a problem, uh, and they have to learn to eat reasonably. Uh, but those of us who have the allergy of the body and have the mental obsession are caught in a complete vicious circle. Once we start, we know we can't stop. The answer is therefore never to start again, right? But we have a mental problem that gives us the excuse to start again. And the big book discusses that. Uh, in, in great detail, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail, in the chapter more about alcoholism, I'll just begin it. It says um, on page 30, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain, futile attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking. Control and enjoy. So I can have a little bit and still enjoy it. Control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursued into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step 
uh, in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. And they go on. They give a number of examples. Um, the, the first is the man of 30 who stops drinking for 25 years at the age of 55, has made money, retires, out comes the slippers and the pipe and the uh, bottle, and he dies after four years because he just can't stop. They say on page 33, um, if we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Also on page 33 are two paragraphs, I'm not going to read them, where they point out to young people and to women and to people who haven't yet reached that obvious point of no return, the, 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 the gutter drunk, that they can be like us too. You know, I remember I, the, the big book says that you can be a moderate drinker or a heavy drinker, but that's irrelevant. The question is whether you're a real alcoholic, and a real alcoholic um, is, uh, is a person who can't stop once he starts or she starts uh, and uh, who uh, uh, loses all control. The, um, on page 34, they say, for those who are unable to drink moderately, people get the cravings. The question is how to stop altogether. We're assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Uh, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he'll drink or not. Many of us felt we have plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever. Um, yet we found it impossible. <clears throat> I have to take some drink. Uh, this is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. They then give three examples. <clears throat> the first is a guy had a great, a great day, no, had a bad day, and uh, goes out and um, he doesn't want to drink. He hasn't progressed in the program. He's probably done steps one, two, three, and he had a little fight with his boss. He, he works now for the place he used to own. He's not happy about that. He uh, goes to a place where he's eaten many times before, to get something to eat because he's out in the country looking for a prospect to sell cars to. He orders a sandwich and a glass of milk. Uh, no thought of drinking. He orders another sandwich, decides to have another glass of milk. And then on page 36, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I wasn't being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. And they go on and they say on page 37, whatever precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? Uh, you know, the, the common definition of <clears throat> insanity that we hear attributed to Albert Einstein, but I don't think he said it. But someone said it. It's a wonderful definition, uh, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. You may think, <clears throat> think I'm sorry, I have to take something else to drink just a minute, please. My phone tells me I've been speaking for an hour and fifty, an hour and forty minutes, and I wanted to leave some time for questions, but I, I do want to get through this. <clears throat> you may think this an extreme case. To us, it is not uh, far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. But there's always a curious mental phenomenon. Remember, the allergy of the body is a phenomenon of craving. It's a body phenomenon. A phenomenon is an occurrence for which there's no explanation. There's always a curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. 
our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. And, you know, I think of this as parallel reasoning. So it's like the, you know, Walt Disney used to have the good Mickey and the bad Mickey on the shoulders of Mickey Mouse or the good Goofy, the bad Goofy, the good Pluto, the bad Pluto, the angel and the devil. And and I often think of it uh, as sort of like uh, on the one side is the, is the good angel saying, Laurie, you shouldn't eat this. This is bad for you. You have high blood pressure. You have a heart a possibility of a heart condition. You have diabetes in your family. If you eat this, you will get fat. You will continue to be fat. It's bad for you. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And on the other side is the devil. And it is, I mean, you know what? I've got to tell you. It is saying, in essence, only one word. It's saying, come on. Come on. That's all it's saying. It, can, it masks itself in all kinds of different ways, but ultimately it is as stupid as, come on, and that's what I listen to. There's a little click, no, 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 okay, and it's that click, and I can't explain that click, and it's happened to me over and over again. It can be a trivial excuse. And then they say in the big book 37, in some circumstances we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justification for spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately uh, instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific, terrific means horrible, consequences might be. And then they give the example of a jaywalker uh, uh, who continues to jaywalk despite all the evidence that he's going to die of it, and they say uh, on page 38, you may think this illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We have been to the ringer, I have to admit, if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? And then it says, uh, yeah, some of you may be thinking, well, we understand. We can't drink any alcohol. This self-knowledge is sufficient. We're, we're happy. Now that we know we can't drink any alcohol in any form, we're fine. And uh, they say on page 39, that may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and, or, and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. I have a friend who was really quite obese, more obese than I ever was. I hadn't seen him for a year. I didn't recognize him when I next saw him. I keep, I'd been trying to get him into OA, and he always resisted it. And he told me he went to his doctor, and uh, his doctor uh, said, well, about his uh, weight, and his doctor said, well, what do you eat? And then my friend told him. The doctor said, stop eating cheese. So my friend stopped eating cheese, and he lost his weight. Well, he clearly is a person who was drinking, was eating, foolishly and heavily, but he was able to stop and moderate and just not eat cheese. He didn't need OA. His problem was that he was eating cheese and he couldn't eat cheese. So he abstained from cheese and he didn't need OA because he didn't have the mental problem that gave him the excuse, well, I've been away from cheese for such a long time, now I can have a little bit. Or, gee, this is a cheese I've never had before, so maybe I'll have it. Or, oh, this cheese is made from organic milk that was uh, uh, made from yaks in, in Tibet that were blessed by the Dalai Lama, so it's got to be good. It's free-range cheese. It's natural cheese. It's made from whole grains. I don't know what. But whatever it is, uh, they, they, they then tell the story of a guy had a great day um, 
who hadn't progressed in the steps, who just said, I can do it. And he, he has a great day with his business, and he goes to his hotel on page 41. And I crossed the threshold of the dining room. The thought came to mind, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. And he goes on to spree. Another click. On page 43, uh, they end that chapter by saying, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. So the, the concept in the big book is that it can be a very trivial excuse. And I'm going to give you a list. Uh, it's found in the, in the book that you can download from oabigbook.info. Um, I'm standing up. It doesn't count. Uh, I didn't eat the bun. I didn't eat the last French fries. I'm so depressed what will make me feel better. I'm so happy. How can I celebrate it? They made it especially for me. How can I refuse? I'll never be able to have this food again. She's not looking, so it doesn't count. I have to taste it in order to see whether it's okay. No one loves me. Too many people love me. Overeating will kill me, but it's a nice way to commit suicide. My wife won't feel guilty when I die. How will I fit in otherwise? At least people can see what my weakness is. Um, it's a stone ground, whole grain cinnamon bun made with organic molasses and cold-pressed organic oil. It's really good for me. It doesn't count. I've been good for a year. I've been good for a month. I've been good for a week. I've been good for an hour so I can have some. Now, in a way, we hear about physical and emotional sickness or illness. And the big book goes beyond emotional, at least the way we talk about the word emotional, and talks about mental, because it doesn't have to be. It can be a severe emotional problem that causes us to go back to eating. They give us the excuse, but it can also be a stupid one, just one that's insane but has no emotion behind it. I can have a really good day and give my – I could have had, not now, but uh, 20, 22 years ago – I could have had a really good day, everything's fine, and suddenly someone would offer me something, and I'd say, fine, I'll have some, for no reason other than someone offered it to me. No reason other than it was the third time they offered it. If they had stopped with the second and hadn't offered it to me the third time, I wouldn't have had it. I refused it twice, but since I refused it twice, the third time, I can have it. These are really stupid reasons, and if... if my experience is unless people understand that it goes beyond emotional, we can get all the therapy we want and we get all the love uh, we want and we can turn everything over to God uh, as we think we are doing, uh, if, if we think that step three is, is doing that, even though I think it's, my experience is it's only a decision, it's not doing it. You, to turn your will and your life over to God, you have to go through with your decision and, and do steps four through nine and continue to do steps 10, 11, and 12. But anyway... If we think that solving our emotional problems is going to keep us from that little click, then we're fooling ourselves. And I, I, I fooled myself for a long time, and I, I see people in a way who have admitted that they've been fooling themselves too. The problem is that there's any excuse in the world that's good enough because our minds are much smarter than we are. We can't stop thinking. You know, I'll give you 5000 bucks if you stop thinking about uh, the word rhinoceros uh, for 20 seconds. You won't, I will win that bet every time because there are parts of our minds that we cannot control. You may go, la, 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 I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking of rhinoceros. And suddenly you're, you're done. You've thought of rhinoceros. You can control one or two planes of your mind, but you can't control them all. And because of that, there's a part of our mind that we must accept is insane. 
it says, come on. You're tired, you're happy. You're hungry, you're, you're lonely. You're looking at food that uh, you'll never have again. Why shouldn't you give yourself something? They're looking at you. You better eat it. You don't want to look out. They made it for you. Stupid excuses, not emotional ones. Some of them are deeply emotional, but not all of them. So that's the allergy of the body. And it's that problem that creates the vicious circle. Once I start, I can't stop. That's the allergy of the body. I can't stop my body from doing that. My body is always going to be like that for the rest of my life. Once I start, I can't stop certain foods. Never happened with radishes, <laughs> but it certainly has happened with butter and cheesecake and shortbread and ice cream and French fries and fried chicken and, and all that stuff. Um, but you know what? That's just a physical disability. And I have friends, I have a very close friend with a physical disability that's beyond, I have a, few, a number of close friends who have physical disabilities that, that I don't have, and they accept them. They don't pretend that they don't have those physical disabilities. They accept them, and frankly, uh, the, cur- the courage they have in accepting them is tremendously inspirational, but they accept their disability. They don't deny it. They don't have little moments when their mind clicks and says, oh, I don't have this disability. I can get out of this wheelchair. They know they can't, and they, they work within the limitations of their physical disabilities. Their, their problem is a physical disability and nothing more. My problem is that my mind persuades itself that I don't have the physical problem. Uh, it's, it's an obsession. Someday, somehow, I will control and enjoy my compulsive my eating, my compulsive eating. I will control and enjoy my binge foods. And so that is what causes me desperation. Because if I can never stop myself from going back, then I will never be able to stop myself from having the cravings. I'm in a vicious circle from which I myself cannot get out. And the only hope I have is from something external, something that can change my mind. I just want to end with this and then open, open the floor to questions. Uh, the 12 steps offer me relief from the obsession of the mind. And I've been granted, because I have worked the steps and for no other reason, I, I don't take credit for it myself, I've been granted relief from the obsession I look at the foods that used to beckon to me with disgust. Why would I eat anything that would kill me? I can watch other people eat them uh, and enjoy the fact that they're enjoying those things and not have the least wish to have them myself. That's a miracle for me. And it's something that I could never do on my own. On my own, I know my mind would have said, well, if they're eating it, why can't you? Come on, have some. Come on. And yet I haven't had that feeling for almost 20 years. And uh, that's, that's a miracle. Nothing I did by myself. I worked the steps, and the steps gave me that miracle. And so long as I continue to work the steps, I continue to have that same miracle on a day-to-day basis. One of the reasons, and I'm going to finish this, and to thank uh, Leah and thank all of you for, for listening to me, is there are three ways I continue to keep this recovery. One is I continue to take personal inventory. I do steps four through nine on a regular basis so that I am clean with my past as it piles up in me as time goes on. And I, am, I work my best to rid myself of uh, the character defects of selfishness, dishonesty, self-seeking, and, 
and uh, fear. Uh, second is that I meditate and I, I try and keep in contact with my higher powers. I understand that, which is not a not a, a, a personal God of any kind, but but a, a abstractions of truth, love, justice, and beauty. That's step 10, step 11. And then the third way I do it is by carrying the message of recovery. And you have given me such a wonderful opportunity to carry that message. I want to thank you and thank the group, uh, the vision for you, and I'll end here. And I'm available for questions. And, and Leigh, I can go on beyond 1030 if you want, if you want to, but we may, may have to end at 1030. So I'm, I'm off now. Well, well, thank you, Lori. Thank you so much for your thorough explanation and study of the grave nature of our illness. We appreciate it so much. I just want to be considerate of your time. Uh, what time would you like me well, to? Well, I have I have to go to my OA meeting in uh, an hour and ten minutes, and uh, I need uh, I have to leave about uh, I need I need probably I have to finish by about uh, ten to the hour. Okay, so let's so I, do that. I have more time if, 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 if people need it. I may, they may not. They may be so tired. My goodness. <laughs> well, we thank you for your, uh, your time and your effort here this morning. So we will open the lines right now. If you have a question like you'd like to direct to Lori, you can press star 1 to unmute. Hi, Lori. This is Maggie, compulsive overeater. Hi, Maggie. Hi, I thank you so much for your time, and oh, this was wonderful. I wonder if you would please go over the OA dish definition of abstinence again and expound on that a bit, if you would. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. I, I, I better go to the OA website and just make sure I get the, the, the exact right uh, definition. Um, I'm pretty sure I remember it, but it's, it's uh, uh, where is it? Um, it is abstaining from compulsive eating uh, and compulsive e- and, and eating behaviors and working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight. I think that's fair. Uh, let me let me let me just go to it and and uh, because I think it's important. Uh, bridge version of the tool of recovery and uh, where is abstinence plan of eating? I'm sorry, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but it is the notion that we abstain from eating and eating behaviors that causes the cravings. I think I think it's there, and working towards and maintaining a health or maintaining a healthy body weight, which it seems to me is 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 really saying to us we've got to do the same kinds of things that anyone in any other 12-step program does. Stop it. Just stop the stop with what's causing the problem and then uh, causing the physical problem and then work towards getting rid of the mental problem. I, I, I wish I could do better than that, but that's, that's, I, I just can't find it this quickly. I'm sure it's here somewhere, but maybe it should be here better. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Maggie. This is Patricia Maris. Of course, uh, Patricia. Okay, I have two questions, quick ones. One is, did you ever mourn the food that you couldn't eat when you realized you couldn't have it anymore for the rest of your life? Did you ever mourn that? And the second question is, do you ever find yourself obsessing about other things now that you're abstinent? Thank you. Okay, good, great questions. Well, I I think by the time after six or seven years in the program and and being on relapsing, uh, recovery, relapse, recovery, relapse, 
I think by the time I accepted the notion of the allergy of the body, I, I didn't mourn it at the time. Um, and I certainly don't mourn it now. Um, I don't miss any of the foods I used to eat that I've given up. Uh, if there's any food I miss, it's, it's, it's real peanut butter. It's really good peanut butter, but I don't even miss that either. Uh, so I, I, what, it's the steps that deal with it. And once I work the steps, I, I, I no longer mourn them. Why would I mourn anything that kills me? While I was working the steps, I might have, and I certainly have found a lot of sponsees who, who do. They, you know, I'll never have this, I'll never have that again. But once they work the steps, uh, you know, especially if they, if they use the, the forms that were developed uh, out of the big book that are available at OABigBook.info, which really allows you to work on this quite easily, you know, they, they might put down um, as a resentment, I'll never eat ice cream again. And once they work that through, they don't mourn it anymore. Uh, third, do I obsess about other things? Sure I do. And, and that's what step 10 is all about. It is a way of working through as, a re, uh, as steps four through, four through nine while you're in recovery. And I literally do what I did in step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. But I, since I've recovered, I, it's a step 10. And I do that whenever I find myself obsessing about some things, whenever I find myself being restless or irritable or, uh, or uh, discontented, I, I put that down on paper. I pull out the step four forms. Well, I, I memorize them, so I just use a blank piece of paper, and I share them with another human being, and I make amends for any wrongs I've done. I find many other things that have gone on in my life that I, I regret or that I resent and I, I, or that I fear. An obsession is something that it happens, and I, I do have it. Um, I need some perspective. I need to remind myself what I'm here on earth for, and uh, once I do that, I, I lose the obsession. I hope that answers the question. Thank you so much. Yes, it does. Okay. Thank you, Patricia. Anyone else? Hi, this is Yvonne Ida. I have a question. Hi. Um, do you think it is possible to have an obsession in my eating behavior uh, without have being, having a body allergy? Yeah, okay. I, I want to be clear that the word obsession is used for the mental problem, okay? Just, mm -hmm. uh, and that eating behaviors are, should be looked at as a physical problem, uh, uh, as part of the allergy. So I, I, in that context, my answer is yes. I think it's entirely possible for someone to have a problem only with eating behaviors and not to have a problem with specific foods. It, it's rare I, in my experience, uh, but my experience is, not, is limited, um, you know, just to the people I've met. I've met a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that I've, I've met uh, uh, a random sample of people. Um, but I, I, I think there are some people who, who learn, um, who have eating behaviors that cause them um, the phenomenon of craving, that cause them uncontrollable cravings, and who, once they stop those eating behaviors, find that they can eat all kinds of things that I can't eat uh, and, and, and don't want them and, and don't get cravings from them. I, I would find it unusual, and, and certainly I would say to anyone I sponsored who said to me, well, my, my only problem is, 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 is uh, eating behaviors, but uh, I think I can continue to eat ice cream, I can continue to eat cheesecake. You know, and if, uh, um, now, if, if they're of a reasonable uh, weight already and, and they think that their only problem is uh, eating behaviors, maybe that's right, but I'll tell you, if they're overweight, uh, I would... Um, I would question them thoroughly on why they want to eat uh, cheesecake and ice cream uh, while uh, moderately. 
but if they say that's my only problem, eating behaviors, I'll go with it. I don't care because I know that my experience is this. If you, if you are honest, as honest as you can be with yourself, as I was at the beginning of working this, uh, these steps with this friend of mine uh, when I was finally discovering the big book, I was as honest as I could be about what I should be abstaining from. And I abstained from that. And I worked the steps, and when I worked the steps, I no longer wanted to return to the foods I had given up and the food ingredients I had given up. And then, as time went on, I realized that there were other things I had to give up, certain eating behaviors, certain other kinds of foods. It's been happening to me for years that I've, I've been eliminating some foods here and there. Um, I do that, and I do that without a whimper because I know, oh, wow, this is, this is a problem for me. So I, I, I'm not worried. If someone's honest with himself or herself and not fooling himself or herself and abstains from whatever it is that he or she truly believes is the problem, isn't fooling himself or herself, that person works the steps. I have no doubt that ultimately that person will recover. And if that person finds out that he or she has been fooling himself or herself, that person will give up the stuff. So I'm not terribly worried about that. hope that answers the question. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question. I have a question. Daddy, you're calling from Illinois. Hi. Hi. Uh, since one must uh, have a clear mind and thinking, uh, what do you consider uh, being dragged out from the food before working the steps? I, I could hardly hear. I'm sorry. Uh, how long should one be dried out before working the steps? Yes. I, I don't have any rule of thumb for that. I, I you know, I, I think you work the steps as quickly as you can. You get recovery as quickly as you can. And uh, I think that, I mean, I've, I've had occasions where, where sponsees have, have uh, abstained on one day and started working the steps the next. No, I couldn't hear that. <clears throat> Oh, that wasn't me. That's someone else talking. Oh, I see. Okay. That's been my experience. Now, other people think you should be dry for X number of days. I, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, the early AAers, they, uh, you know, there are all kinds of stories. The, the, the doctor says you have to have some periods of sobriety, and I, I, I think that's probably true. Certainly, I don't encourage people to work the steps that quickly. Um, I, think they, I think they should have some... Some time of sobriety is some time of absence, but you know what? I I I, uh, I think I think it depends on the individual, and and it comes out in steps four and five. In step five, there's a simple checklist of whether you've done step five properly. You should be feeling delighted, can look the world in the eye, uh, be a perfect peace and ease, and your fear should have fallen from you. If that's not the case, you go back and work steps four, so you have more time being abstinent. But I do believe you have to be absent while working the steps. And, and if, someone's, if someone uh, binges um, in the middle of working the steps, I always go back and I always say, and this is not quite an answer to your question, but um, I, I, think if you're, I think you'll binge again if you're not dried out. And if that's the case, I go back and I work with the sponsee. Okay, what were the mistakes? Maybe you're still eating some things that you should be giving up. Uh, what is your plan of action for for abstaining while you're working the steps, and we work on that. So it's a trial and error kind of thing, and, and there are no wrong answers to the question you've asked because people will discover it as they go along. Whatever they do, they'll work the steps faster 
than if they waited one year before they got sober. I, I, I'm upset sometimes by people who have these rules, which don't exist in OA, but they, they say rules. You can't work step four until you've been sober for a year or absent for a year. There's no indication that that's the case. And as a matter of fact, the history of AA and my own personal experience shows that you can be absent for shorter than that and work the steps. The whole point is how desperate you are, how hard you are willing to work, and how abstinent uh, and 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 how and how you work the steps. Uh, that to me is the key. And I think any set rules is that, that you place on anyone else is not part of OA or AA tradition. It certainly isn't part of any group conscience of, of OA or of AA. So there's no answer to that question. I think it depends on the individual. Hi, I'd like to ask a question. Thank you so much, Laurie. You really done a fantastic explanation of the allergy. But, you know, I'm in the process of looking for a sponsor now. I am abstaining from the foods that I feel I should, and uh, I am in the process, again, that I'm looking for a sponsor. And almost every sponsor that I have spoken to has given me their plan of eating and insisted upon the fact that I have to follow their plan, otherwise they can't sponsor me. Well, and, I think that's a, yeah, that's a tragedy. Uh, and I think you should show them uh, the Dignity of Choice pamphlet and show them the passages in that pamphlet that say very clearly that that's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's the group conscience of OA, not what, they, what they're doing. What they're doing is not the group conscience of OA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thanks. anyway, uh, you, if you can't find a sponsor to work the steps with because they have these incredible rules that are contrary to the uh, group conscience of OA, then do what I did. Find someone else who wants to work the steps the way you do and work together with that person. You know, the instructions in the big book work whether or not you have a sponsor. And um, the big book cautions us not to become dependent upon another person, but to become dependent upon our higher power. So from my perspective, and I've got to tell you, I, I know I'm considered a radical, I guess, in certain ways. From my perspective, the whole issue is working the steps as quickly as you can, deeply, but as quickly as you can. And, and you can work with another person in recovery. That's what the, that's what the original AAers did. Um, and uh, and uh, it's, it's the steps. It's finding your own personal higher power through working the steps that will give you the recovery. And I do my best when I sponsor not to make people dependent upon me because I don't want them to be dependent upon me. I want them to be dependent upon a higher power of their own understanding. And I want them to find that higher power, and they're not going to find it if they keep relying on me to help them, to, to be their guide and their boss and to tell them what they should be doing. They're the ones who have to do the work, not me. Burn the Thank idea you. into the consciousness of every man, job or no job, wife or no wife, he will not stop. He will not recover unless he stops placing his dependence upon other people and places his dependence upon God. And that's from the big book. Thank you so much, Lori. That's a wonderful explanation. Thank you. You really relieved my mind of a lot of things. Good. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning? Star one to unmute. Thank you, Sal. All the questions. Go right ahead. Thank you. Um, I just uh, have I have a family of five additional people in my home, none of whom are food addicts. When life happens and 
it's really hard to stay really, you know, centered with God and, and run from, you know, what's going on and be able to take the time when you're in the midst of the chaos of teenagers and everything. And I do find myself when I'm serving the food that they can eat that I can't eat, I I do want it and I have to walk away from it. Do you have any um suggestions on how I can reach a better or stronger recovery and in the midst of the chaos that goes on with um, family and yet be able to serve them the foods that were my binge foods and uh, I can't have and I, I don't normally want them but sometimes it's just like boy I want that and I got to walk away from it you know well I, 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 I do you mind if I ask you some questions and do you mind answering them Sure. Um, are you working the steps? Uh, I am not um, as strongly as I could be. Then, I, then, I, then my suggestion to you is to develop a plan of action by which you do a few things. First of all, you, you get a, a good sense of what your plan of eating is, and, and you abstain from the foods and the eating behavior. I have, that don't have, yeah. I have Okay, so you have a good eating plan, a plan yeah. of eating. Secondly, develop – yeah. I'm sorry? I'm at my goal weight, and I've been there for quite a while. So it's just, you know, the occasional when life is in my face and I yeah. don't have the time to stop. Oh, well, no, no. But, oh, then, then the whole thing is you should be working the steps. And you should have a plan of action for working the steps because, I'll tell you, once you finish step nine, if you've done it uh, to the best of your ability, no matter how you do it, if you've done it to the best of your ability, once you finish step nine and you're working steps 10, 11, and 12, you will be able to serve other people food and not want it. And you won't suffer from that problem. And if, if, um, if you still suffer from that problem, it means either you haven't really worked steps 4 through 9, or you're not working steps 10, 11, and 12 uh, as much as you should. So if you've already recovered, let's say you've done step 4 and through 9, and you have that recovery, but it comes back, and this problem keeps coming back because your kids are, you know, whatever – well, I mean, that happens to me. It, when I find myself thinking more about food than I should, uh, that's my sort of my saying, boy, you'd better do a step 10. You'd better write down all the things that are bothering you. Uh, do a step four through nine. Write down your resentments. Write down your fears. Write down your conduct issues. Figure out, share them with another human being. Figure out what amends you have to make. Um, and then it goes. You, you know, so... Or maybe you better help someone else. Maybe you better become more involved in OA. Maybe you better, you know, uh, find more people to help. Uh, or maybe you should be meditating more. For me, the answer is either you've worked step, if you haven't worked step four through nine, then you better work step four through nine. If you have worked step four through nine and you've achieved recovery, but you have a problem with recurring problems, you're not working steps 10, 11, and 12. One, one, one or all of those. Because... The solution is all in the steps. It's it's in nothing else. There's, you know, does that help? Hello. Best press star one to unmute. Anyway, I hope it helps. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That that does help. My wife just hit the skids in the last two weeks, and I was not slowing back down to do ten, eleven, and twelve. But I did get more into uh, service the last few days, and. Um, and really looked at my selfishness, self-centeredness, uh, self-seeking, you know, uh, fear, and, 
and all that kind of stuff. And it, it really did help. But I was just shocked at how much I wanted what they were eating. And you're right, I needed to ramp up steps 10, 11, and 12 in the midst of the time-consuming chaos that was going on. So yep. thank you very yep. much. Yeah, cause I, and I, I agree. I mean, it's certainly that has happened to me. And in, in that book that you can get on oabigbook.info, you'll, you'll see uh, – uh, 12 ways to figure out whether you should be doing steps 10, 11, and 12 again, uh, whether you should be doing a step 10. Um, and the, the first three are restless, irritable, and discontented. Uh, and certainly I have found that. I and mean, life gets to you. Life goes on. You, you recover in step nine, and everything's wonderful. And then, you know, two months later, something happens or something doesn't happen that you want to happen or something happens that you don't want to happen, and suddenly you're, you're full of resentments again. So, you know, I, I continually do steps four, four through nine in, 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 as a step ten. Okay? Anything else? Thank you. No, thank hey, Lori. Good morning. Morning. Good. Thank you. This is Kathleen in California, and I wanted to ask you if you would speak to this. Um, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people say they've been in OA for a gazillion years and uh, that's an exaggeration, of course, but just yeah. to make a point, and and that they're still struggling, and should I do the steps again, and and so I'm that's my background to the question: How would you describe to us that we can know we're recovered? Like it's a big we're told to look for a recovered sponsor. What the, is the, that? the the clear answer to that, the minimum answer to that, is. A recovered person is a person who no longer wants to eat the foods or indulge in the eating behaviors that he or she used to, that cause cravings. That, I mean, that's the, that's the generic answer. That's the simple. That's the, 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 the smallest, uh, the, the least the definition of recovery. You, you can go beyond that and talk about spirituality, but at least it's a person who has achieved or is working towards a healthy body weight, who is ab- abstaining, and who no longer wants to return to the things that cause the problems. Um, and how does, how does the big book of recovery fit into that for the way of life? Well, the big book is all about that. It's all about working the steps and, 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 and uh, achieving that kind of recovery. That's its minimum definition of recovery gotcha. is, is a person who, who no longer wants to go back, who has lost the obsession of the mind. There are many other definitions uh, of, of, of uh, spirituality, but if you look at the uh, appendix on, on um, spiritual experience, you'll see that recovery from alcoholism is the, is the, is, is the essence of a spiritual condition. Um, there are many others. But it's not a godly person. It, it can be. But it has to be a person who, has, uh, who, has maintained, who no longer wants to return. Because um, the promises, that kind of promise is found on page... Uh, I think it's 100 and 101, or maybe it's 101 and 102. Um, the the promise. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's not the one I'm talking about. It's it's the. Um, it's, uh, I'm sorry. Page 84 is the is the. But um, they're called the hidden promises. They come after the promises in 83 and 84. The the famous ones. Well, no peace. You know how far down the scale we've gone. We'll see how our experience benefit others. But the definition of recovery. Uh, it's found on page 84 at the bottom. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor if tempted. We recoil from it as from a hot flame. At uh, page 85, we react sanely and normally. We will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any effort or thought on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. 
We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We haven't even sworn off. Um, instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That's the promise after step nine. And a person who has that has recovered. If they maintain that through steps 10, 11, and 12, they continue their recovery. That's what I would look for in a sponsor. So, so that promise includes steps four through eight? That happens after step nine. Okay. So, so it doesn't happen before step nine from the big one. I mean, it may happen, but it, it doesn't happen. It's guaranteed by the end of step nine. And I, I would you, not Lori. take as a sponsor anyone who hasn't finished step nine, has this kind of recovery. That, that's a person I would then go to for a sponsor. To work the steps with. There are all kinds of other kinds of sponsors in OA. Uh, we call them sponsors. I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't call them sponsors in the same way. A sponsor, for me, is a person who's going to take me through the steps. But there are food sponsors and there are buddies and there are all kinds of other people in OA that we call sponsors. Um, but, but I'm talking about a person to take me through the steps. I'd look for a person who recovered. If I can't find that person, I would look for a person who wants to work the steps the way I want to work the steps. I'd work with them. It's not hard. It just requires work. Simple but not easy. You know, and, 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 and I, you know, we, we, we keep looking for the right sponsor, and we lose the chance to recover. It's not the sponsor who will get us to recover. It's the steps that get us to recover. And, and uh, we can... We can we can, you can be on a, on a ship in the middle of nowhere. You can be in Antarctica and have no one to sponsor you and still recover. Now, let's not kid ourselves. It's, we, it's not the sponsors we need. It's the steps we need. Sponsors help. Sponsors are really helpful. They can give us a lot of experience, but they're not going to get us to recover. It's, it's the connection with our higher power that recover, gives us recovery. And the only way we get... A connection with a higher power is to get rid of the things that are blocking us from that higher power. And that's what steps four through nine is all about. That's the subject of another talk, but that's what it's all about. Hope that helps. Oh, very much. Thank you so much for speaking to that. Thank you, Kathleen. Anyone else with a question this morning? Good morning. Yes, this is Anne Marie. Anne Marie, Hi. go ahead. Hi. Um, thank you, Laurie. Uh, you know, I had to get off the phone for a little bit, so if this question is a repeat, I apologize. No need to answer. I'll just listen to the recording. Um, I heard you say that, uh, I think it was between uh, 1986 and, or 87, you came into OA to yeah. 93. Yeah. Um, during that time, can you, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. can you tell us what you were doing yeah, I made or not mistakes. doing? Yes, yes, thank you. I made two mistakes. The first was that I did not identify the foods and the eating behaviors that I should have abstained from. I believed that once I lost my weight, I could eat moderately. And, and so I would recover. I would lose weight because I would be dieting, and I would work the steps, and everything felt great. And then I'd go back to having, you know, one cup of ice cream or half a cup of ice cream a week and uh, half a, or half a donut, and then it became and a half a donut. And so the food, I, my cravings came back. So on the, on the one hand, the first mistake I made was that I was continuing to eat things that caused me uncontrollable cravings. So, of course, I began to eat uncontrollably. The second thing that happened is that I also did not understand step 10. I recovered through step 9, but I read step 10 as if it were, as, as it's written on the wall, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 
So if my kids acted up and I yelled at them, I apologized. I admitted that I had made a mistake. But I didn't do steps four through nine. I didn't do a complete inventory process. And thus, I didn't know why I was yelling at my kids. I mean, pardon me for raising my voice. I didn't know why I was doing these things. I didn't know what real amends I had to make. My amends were not to apologize, not to admit my mistake. They were to make amends, which was to change myself and my reaction to life. And, and, uh, and so the, uh, once I realized that I had to abstain and continue to abstain from certain things and then work steps four through nine and then continue to do the equivalent of steps four through nine in step 10, that step 10 describes much more. And in the big book, if you go to step 10, you'll see that it really is doing steps four through nine. It's not admitting it. It's making up for the harms you've done which may not be admitting a harm, it may be rectifying a harm. And for me in my relationship with my kids or with my family, which became the focal point of most of my amends um, uh, as I went on in life, uh, it meant being a different person. It meant be, be, being, going back to the good person I used to be and not the person who was so petulant and moody and stuff that I was becoming because life wasn't going my way. Hope that helps. Thank you. All right. Well, it's 10.50 a.m., so, Lori, I want to be considerate of your time. I, I thank do have you. to go, yeah. Yes, thank you so much for this revealing and transforming study this morning. Much, much appreciated. I'm going to close the meeting, as we always do on A Vision for You, and that's with the reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.